All right, so hopefully uh, I'll boom in a minute. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Lord, as we come to this passage about the trial of the Son, we recognize what holy ground we are treading on. And Lord, I feel myself a very unworthy vessel of such a sacred word. Father, I pray by your spirit that you would empower me to speak rightly. Father, may this word be a word of life to us by the power of your spirit. May we honor and love your son. It's in his name we pray. Amen. All right, so we're going to carry on from the children's sermon this morning and talk about the trial of Jesus. And we're going to talk about passion. A passion. Because the last few hours of Jesus' life, so that's his trial and crucifixion, are often called his passion. Uh, when Mel Gibson made his movie about this part of Jesus' life, he called it the passion of Jesus Christ, right? Um, so we're going to go step by step through Luke's account of the trial of Jesus. And the way I want us to look at it is through the lens of the word passion. So passion is a powerful emotion or desire, passion, uh, passionate feeling. And the feeling that I want to talk about specifically in this trial is love, passionate love. So as we look at Jesus on trial, where do we see his divine love? So the best description of love that I know is Paul's description in 1 Corinthians 13. It's the one that you probably have memorized from dozens of weddings. And it says this, love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things, Love never ends. <clears throat> so those are the words that I want us to keep in mind as we study Luke chapter 22 and 23. So please turn there. It's uh, page 883 in uh, the Black Bibles, Luke chapter 22. And we're starting in at verse 63. So in Luke's Gospel, the trial of Jesus has six scenes, six distinct scenes. So first, Jesus is mocked by his captors, starting in verse 63. Second, he stands trial before the chief priests in verse 66. Third, he stands trial before Pontius Pilate at the beginning of chapter 23. Fourth, he stands trial before King Herod in 23 verse 6. Fifth, he goes back to Pilate in verse 13. And sixth, finally, it's trial by angry mob in verse 18. So six distinct stages. And to do justice to the injustice, we'll need to spend time looking at all six of those scenes. So hold on to your hats. <laughs> um, there's more to say about the first three than the last three. So we got halfway, and I've used all, almost all my time to spare. <laughs> so first, scene one, Jesus was mocked by his captors. So this is Luke chapter 22, starting at verse 63. So these men who are mocking Jesus are probably the same men uh, who seized him in the Garden of Gethsemane. So it was a small squadron of soldiers who came to Gethsemane armed with swords and clubs. 
and they were hired by the chief priests to take Jesus into custody. So they were most likely Jewish men, and uh, they might have included some of the temple guards. That's the people we're talking about at the beginning. Um, they were hired to bring Jesus into custody, but their treatment of him in custody was shameful. So they had no authority to mock him and beat him. And that's no way to treat a respected healer and teacher, especially one who's put up no kind of resistance to arrest. And Luke here is clearly disgusted by what these soldiers did. He calls it blasphemy. Do you notice that? Which, of course, it was, since the man that they were insulting and mistreating was God. It's also deeply ironic that what they're trying to do with Jesus is mock and scorn his gift of prophecy, right? So they blindfold him, and then they, they slap him in the face or, or, or mistreat him in some way, and then they say, prophesy, who hit you? They're mocking and scorning his particular gift as a prophet. But all the time they're doing this, they themselves are fulfilling his prophecy, right? So just recently, he said, the Son of Man will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And those men themselves are bringing that to pass while they are scorning him as a prophet. So they are, sh are heaping shame on their own heads. Paul wrote, love is not arrogant or rude. And instead, like Jesus, love is patient. It bears all things and endures all things. So that's the first scene. <clears throat> scene two, Jesus stood trial before the Jewish council. And this starts in verse 66. And the scene begins in the early morning. So Luke says, the assembly of elders included both chief priests and scribes. So these are the highest authorities in Jewish law. They're the judges of Israel from ancient times. And as we might hope, they conduct themselves with more decorum than the soldiers. They at least make a show of giving Jesus a fair trial. Except, of course, that this isn't a fair trial, not even close. Because Jewish law uh, gave the defendant of any trial the right to legal counsel, just like we do. But Jesus stood there alone. Jewish law required at least two days for the trial of any capital offense. But this trial was finished in less than an hour. And Jewish law prescribed that the trial like this should, be, uh, take, should take place in the temple. But this trial got nowhere near the temple. It was most likely held at the high priest's house. And on top of all that, the council of elders that's assembled to try Jesus has obviously already made up its mind about him before the trial even begins. So they ask him a question, and Jesus' answer to them is, If I tell you, you will not believe. And if I, answer, if I ask you, you will not answer. And both of those negatives in the Greek are emphatic negatives. So Jesus say, is saying, there's no way you'd ever believe me. And there's no way you'd ever answer me. Their minds were completely closed in this trial. So this was a sham of a trial. And Jesus thought, well, he might as well get it over with. 
<laughs> so the next thing he says is to throw them a bone that they'll need to keep the whole thing moving. So this is what he says. He says, from now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. Okay? And that might sound like a bit of an obscure statement to us, but to them, to the people that he was standing trial in front of, that made perfect sense. Okay? Because they would recognize that Jesus was quoting from and claiming Psalm 110 about himself. That that Psalm 110 was the key to who Jesus really was. And that is a massive claim. And I want us to see that for ourselves. What a big deal that is. So um, keep a finger in Luke 22 right there and flip back to Psalm 110. It's uh, page 509 in the Black Bibles. Psalm 110, and we had it read for us earlier. So if you found Psalm 110, uh, looking at verse 1, you can see the part that Jesus was referring to. It says in verse 1, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. And there it is again in verse 5. The Lord is at your right hand. Okay? So that's the part Jesus was claiming. Uh, and that's the testimony that Jesus was making about himself in front of the uh, high priests. That he, the Son of Man, is the person that Psalm 110 is talking about. Alright? Now if that's his claim, then what Jesus is saying is that he himself is God's appointed king. Psalm 110 verse 2, look at it. It says, rule in the midst of your enemies. And Jesus is also saying that he's God's true priest. Because verse 4 says, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And thanks to Taylor for explaining what that means. Um, and then he also says that he's God's appointed judge. Because verse 6 says he will execute judgment among the nations. And in Psalm 110, the wildest and most outrageous claim of all is that the Son of Man is actually God. Because in verse 1, great King David, who's writing this psalm, calls him my Lord. And you might remember from a couple of weeks back that we worked out that that has to mean God. In other words, Jesus, who stands in front of these priests as a sleep-deprived, penniless, traveling preacher who was facing judgment, was actually their king, their priest, their judge, and their God. That is the weight of the claim that Jesus made to them about himself while he stood trial, okay? And none of them missed it, not one. So flip forward again to Luke 22, and look at verse 70. Uh, their response, look at, see the word all there in verse 70? Luke reports that they all ask the next question. So they've heard what Jesus said, and they've worked through Psalm 110, and they've come to the conclusion, and they all together, their educated minds, come to this. Are you the Son of God then? That is the right next question, and they all got there. Bingo. Jesus' answer to them is yes and more than yes. All right? So this is actually a Las Vegas-style, neon-lit, flashing billboard of a yes with fireworks and confetti coming out of it. You say that I am. You 
the most elevated scholars of the Hebrew Bible we have say, because the scriptures say it, and you're not completely ignorant of the scriptures, that the inescapable conclusion that everything you've read in your life points to I am. Greek has a simple way to say I am, and it's one word, a me. That's the I am you'd say to say, I am just popping out to the shops for some milk. <laughs> and it has a way to say I, which is just ego. But if you want to be emphatic, you can put the two words together and say, ego a me, I am. And that's what Jesus does in verse 17. And it's not like no one else ever used those two words together, or like they have to mean the holy name of God, Yahweh, I am who I am. But it is the case that almost every time in the Gospels, those words are used together, they're on the lips of Jesus, and he's making an important disclosure about himself. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. Before Abraham was, I am. And here, you say that I am. His affirmation was clear enough to the priests that they were ready to convict him without any more witnesses. They'd rejoice that they'd caught him. But love, wrote Paul, does not envy. It rejoices with the truth. <clears throat> Scene three. Jesus was put on trial before Pontius Pilate. So now we've moved into the beginning of Luke chapter 23. The chief priests had made up their mind about Jesus, but they didn't have the authority to execute him. Only Rome had that authority, and it was carried by the Roman governor, Pontius Pilate. But Rome wasn't likely to execute anyone for blaspheming the name of the Jewish God. Rome didn't care at all about that. So the chief priests needed a different list of charges if Pilate was going to listen to them. And that took a little bit of spin. Actually, it took quite a lot of spin. Actually, it took downright deception. So here are the two charges that the priests made about Jesus to Pilate. First charge, that Jesus went about forbidding people to pay taxes to Caesar. False. Palpably false. Jesus never said that. And even when they tried to trick him into saying that, he still didn't say that. On the contrary, what he taught people to do was render to Caesar what is Caesar's you remember? Second charge, that Jesus said that he himself was the Christ, a king. Wrong again. Scour through all four Gospels and you won't ever find Jesus saying that. He never tells anyone, I am the Christ. Now, of course, he is the Christ, the Messiah, the true King of Israel. That is his true identity. And the Gospel and New Testament writers boldly proclaim it over and over again. And when other people came to that conclusion in Jesus' life, he was quick to affirm and agree with them. So like Peter declaring the identity of Jesus, you are the Messiah of God, or the woman at the well, or Martha, the sister of Lazarus, after Lazarus had died. So other people said it, and Jesus said yes, but Jesus didn't go around teaching that he was the Christ. He didn't flaunt his own credentials. He let the Father and the Spirit and the Hebrew Bible testify about him. And he paved the way for people to come to that conclusion about him. But he didn't make that decision for them. He never did, not once. And now perhaps here we see why he didn't. 
And it's because of the way that the priests would twist those words into an accusation in his trial before Rome. Because the priests would know that the claim to be a Christ was the claim to be a king, and that that was uh, to stand against the authority of Rome. And so Jesus didn't do that, so that when the priests brought that accusation to Pilate, the Roman governor, it would be false. It would be entirely false. Not even a misunderstanding, but an absolute fabrication. So that the case against Jesus in the end would be utterly without a shred of evidence or a thread of justice, but would rest its full weight on pure malice. Love is kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. Pilate wanted nothing to do with their power-hungry politics. He saw that they had no case that Jesus was innocent, but the priests kept badgering him. So Pilate gave in in the end, and he kept this sham of a trial alive a little longer by throwing it over to Herod. So three scenes to go, and these ones are much shorter. Scene four, Jesus on trial before King Herod. So now we're looking at uh, Luke 23, verse 6. As a Galilean, Jesus technically fell under Herod's jurisdiction. Now, the politics at the time were complicated, but basically the Roman Empire had ultimate control, but it did allow a Jewish monarchy to continue in Israel, a sort of puppet monarchy. And when Jesus was born, the Jewish king of that monarchy was King Herod. That's Herod the Great, the one the Magi visited. Now, that Herod died in 4 BC, and after he died, there was a big mess about his succession. Um, but after all the dust settled, the kingdom ended up being divided between three of his sons, uh, Archelaus, Philip, and Herod Antipas. So it was Herod Antipas that ruled over Galilee, and that was the Herod that Pilate sent Jesus to while he was in Jerusalem for the Passover. Now, this was a bit of a weird maneuver for Pilate, because it was Pilate's authority over the whole country, um, and so he was sort of passing responsibility down the chain of command here. Um, but perhaps he did it because he recognized that this was a very Jewish problem, and it should be tried by the Jewish king. Now, the first Herod, Herod the Great, the one that Jesus was born under, now he had some problems, no doubt. A bit of megalomania, a bit of paranoia, laced with uh, fratricide. Um, but as a politician, and especially as an architect, he did kind of deserve the title great. There were some great things about him as a king. But by contrast, his son, Herod Antipas, seems to have been a pompous imbecile. Um, Luke's picture of him in verse 8 is like a child clapping his hands with glee because the magic man is coming to his birthday party. <laughs> so in the previous scenes, Jesus talked to the priests and he talked to Pilate. But in this scene, he didn't have a single word for Herod. No time at all for the man. Herod showed the kind of man he really was when he joined his soldiers in mocking Jesus and dressing him up in splendid clothing. And Luke remarks that Herod and Pilate became friends that day. 
So in the absence of any mutual respect, enjoyment, or shared vision, those two evil men were bonded by their mutual hatred. Love is not arrogant or mute. It does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. So scene five, back to Pilate. And this starts in verse 13. And really the only progress in the trial that's made in this scene is that Pilate is now able to say back to the priests that Herod, their own king Herod, agrees with his verdict that Jesus is actually innocent. And he reasserts that the proper procedure in the case of innocence is to release the prisoner. Um, but this scene, scene five, quickly merges into scene six, which is trial by angry mob. So it starts in verse 18. Here, at the end of the trial of Jesus, any pretense of it even being a trial is lost. So the verdict has been delivered twice, which is innocent. And there weren't any more arguments to be made. So the prosecution just abandoned its case and raised its voice. Justice by shouting. The cycle repeats three times. Pilate cries out, he's innocent. And the mob screams, crucify him. Until Pilate, afraid of a riot, maybe even afraid for his own life, yielded to their will. So in the end, the trial of Jesus wasn't just a miscarriage of justice. It was a complete abandonment of justice. Jesus was condemned to death by raw, uncivilized, animal savagery by simple unmasked unsophisticated hatred but through the whole ordeal jesus stood firm patient and steadfast the perfect image of love from first corinthians 13. love is patient and kind love bears all things believes all things hopes all things endures all things Love never ends. So we see that the ancient Christians were right to call the trial and crucifixion of Jesus his passion. It's red, hot, burning, divine passion. This is pure love giving itself into the hands of hatred. This is goodness giving itself into the hands of evil. And by doing so, Jesus was unmasking the true hatred and evil and showing it for what it really was, right? So hatred doesn't usually want to show itself. It hides in the shadows. It cloaks itself. It hides behind masks of civility and respectability. But when it thinks that it actually has love, has God in its power, in its grip, it can't resist behaving like a monster. It shows its true face. So right before Jesus went to the cross and dealt with the human problem, he first exposed the real depth of that problem, the real heart of evil and sin. We all tend to minimize what sin really is and think that it's just about those little slip-ups and mistakes like taking an extra chocolate and being mean to the cat. <laughs> but those are just the tiny outer moons of the giant planet of sin. And at the red hot core of the planet is our anger against God himself. 
We're all naturally fierce enemies of God, even to the point of hating him. So here in Luke 22 and 23, we can see that fierce hatred on display in different people and in different ways. We see it in kings and governors and soldiers and common people. And we see it in their spitting and hitting and mocking and lying and shouting at a good man. But they weren't bad people. Not unusually bad people. They were just people. They weren't somehow different from us. The sobering truth is that they had the same disease that we have. So we're brought to the conclusion, as the Holy Spirit convicts us of sin, that if I had been one of those soldiers, I would have behaved like they did. And if I had been a chief priest at the time, I would have behaved like those chief priests. If I had been Pilate, I would have behaved like Pilate. And if I had been in the crowd, I would have shouted with the crowd except for the saving mercy of God. That hatred of God is in my heart too. So in this trial, many different people conspired together to condemn Jesus to death. Many different kinds of people. And most of them could have stopped the death from happening. The chief priest could have stopped it. Pilate could have stopped it. Herod could have stopped it. And the crowd could have stopped it. But none of them did. And together they committed the worst crime in the universe. This is actually the worst sin imaginable. <laughs> this is the sin greater than which cannot be conceived. The creatures killed their good and loving creator. But through it all, through all that, Jesus never stopped loving them. He didn't stop loving any of them. He kept moving forward toward the cross for the very people who nailed him there. And on the cross he cried out, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they do. So the love and mercy of God is greater and deeper than the worst sin conceivable. Only Jesus died that day. Right? Only Jesus. Only the man who didn't deserve to died. There were no lightning bolts from heaven to smite Pilate or Herod or the chief priests, even for the crime of conspiring in the worst sin imaginable. All of them lived on. And within two months, 3,000 Jews would be baptized into the name of the risen Lord Jesus. And can we imagine that some of those who were baptized weren't the same people who were involved in this trial, who put him to death? That there weren't some who were forgiven even for that? And if they were forgiven for that, then there is nothing on earth or in the imagination that cannot be forgiven. Now, we started this morning talking about passion. And we saw the intense, passionate love of Jesus as he stood trial. And also the fierce, passionate hatred of the people who condemned him to death. And the lesson I want us to take away this morning as a community is this. Don't be afraid of passion. What does that mean? Why would we be afraid of passion? Well, I can think of two reasons. The first is that we know that there are some nasty passions lurking in our hearts. To put it nicely, we all have some very mixed feelings about God. 
So maybe it's confusion or disappointment, maybe resentment, maybe even real anger. And we find it best to put a happy face on it and not to tell anyone. The fear is that those nasty things in our hearts will make us unlovable. Or maybe that God will judge us for feeling them. And so we opt for a mask with a smiling face, pretending we're okay. Couple of things I want to say about that. First, I'm pretty sure that pretending we're okay is worse to God than being honest with him about feeling mad about him. I think that's what Jesus meant by accusing the Laodicean church in Revelation of being lukewarm. And he says to them, how I wish you were either hot or cold. In other words, negative passion is better than no passion. Anger and resentment and even hatred is better than indifference to God. God can take it. In fact, he wants it. It's no surprise to him that you have all that kind of junk in your heart. But he wants you to open your heart and pour it out to him no matter what's inside. And there's no way he's ever going to stop loving you. If you're not letting yourself be honest enough to be angry with God, then you're not letting yourself be honest enough to love him either. So we need to open up our wounds to God in order to be healed and also to be open with our community. It's the same for all of us. We're all in the same boat. It's not just your dark little secret. It's all of our dark little secret. So let's make this community a place where it's safe to be honest, where there's no judgment, because we've all taken a long look at our own junk, and we've realized that apart from the mercy of God, there's nothing standing between us and the worst sin imaginable. Let's make this a place where there's no shame and confession, but instead there's mutual encouragement as we turn to find healing together. Don't be afraid of passion. So don't be afraid of your negative passions towards God and try to mask them. But secondly, let's not be afraid of our positive passions either. There's a degree of excitement about Jesus that's socially acceptable, a level that the people around us would think was okay. But today we saw just how far Jesus' passion for us goes beyond that. We could never outdo him. We could never overdo it. When we open up the junk in our hearts to our Savior, we might just find a purer kind of passion coming in to take its place. And if that happens, Let's not be ashamed of that either. Don't hold back your heart from singing. If the Englishman's giving you permission, <laughs> then you have permission. <laughs> Let's make this community a place where it's safe to be excited about our Lord. Don't be afraid of passion.